0: The night of April 14th, 15th, 1912 was an eerie night on the North Atlantic about 400 miles off the coast of Newfoundland. The ocean was untypically calm and there was no moonlight. All was pitch black save for the twinkling of thousands of stars hanging far above in the cloudless night and the lights of the Titanic as she listed badly to one side now in her death throes as her hull filled with water. Her lights were still ablaze, and people could be seen hanging onto the rails, some jumping, some falling. Others could be seen calmly standing and awaiting their fates. People crowded in the lifeboats, huddled in their nightclothes, shivering and listening to the cries of those still floundering in the 28-degree ocean water, wondering if all this was just a bad dream. Some crewmen and volunteers in lifeboats were busy trying to put distance between their boats and the sinking ship. Others were trying to rescue swimmers. Others just watched others in a dazed shock. A disaster of immense proportions was taking place out in the sea in the middle of nowhere with no known hope of rescue, although it was on its way. 1,503 lives, many still on the sinking ship, others in the water, were in the process of ending within minutes. The RMS Titanic, the ship they said would never sink, was about to disappear beneath the waves of the North Atlantic. Welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and this episode, titled, A Disaster Foretold, The Myths and Legends Surrounding the Sinking of the RMS Titanic, is sure to keep you glued to your seat. A little over 1,500 people died that night. None of the rest survived today. But the Titanic disaster has never faded from the world's imagination. The Titanic sank in two hours and 40 minutes, the length of a classic play, in this case, a tragedy. Its cast of characters included people of every rank and station and personality. The cast was large enough to represent the human race, yet small enough to form a self-contained society, ...in which individuals could see what other individuals were doing... ...and think carefully about their own responses. The Titanic had what every great drama needs... ...a relentless focus on the supreme choices of individual lives. There are many who believe that death is preordained... ...and that disasters are written into the future. As humans, the ability to see into the future is rare. The ability to interpret signs that something terrible is going to happen is just as rare. According to psychic Edgar Casey. every action of every human life, the Earth's entire history, is stored in what he called the Akasic Records, the Book of Life, and although we write our own stories, our outcomes are already determined. Warnings do appear before tragedies. Another word for warnings is omens. Sailors and seamen are known to be very superstitious, and stories of bad omens are common in seafaring history. Prophetic omens may appear as strange coincidences, unlikely events, premonitions, dreams, the results of bad choices, remembered associations between places and things and past miseries, any number of signs that something strange is about to take place. If I believe half of all the accounts I've read, The Sinking of the Titanic, was foretold. The best place to begin with is the Ten Commandments. The first commandment reads, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The name of the ship was the Titanic, Titan being a word derived from Greek mythology, which worshipped giant gods called Titans. They were a bloody lot in Greek mythology, and ended up all burning in a smoking underground hell. Their name became synonymous with bigness, supersized, Titanic. The Titanic was described by one of her engineers as being practically unsinkable, and that description was used again and again, changing in form to unsinkable. The ultimate irony. The ship's captain, Edward Smith, was quoted to have said, Even God himself couldn't sink this ship. The author of the book, Down with the Old Canoe, The Cultural History of the Titanic Disaster, Stephen Beale, answered the captain's boast with, You just can't cheat God in that way. And Captain Smith didn't survive the night. And there are many who have drawn similar conclusions about idol worship. For instance, the untimely fates of George Reeves and Steve Reeves, both unknown to each other, both of whom who played Superman on screen, as well as a lesser-known incident as well as a lesser known incident that occurred when bush gardens williamsburg opened a new roller coaster ride called apollo's chariot and there was male model fabio dressed as the god apollo and surrounded by a cortege of white-gowned goddesses they took the first two rows of seats on the new roller coaster and the press lined up for a shot of them as their car approached the end of the ride but hold the cameras when the car rolled in Fabio's face was all bloody, and some of the white gowns around him were splattered as well. It seems that as the coaster was hurtling down the steepest decline, a goose hit the front of the coaster, broke its neck, and then hit Fabio square in the face, cutting it enough to require three stitches. A small and barely remembered incident, but to some, very telling. After the sinking of the Titanic, in many Sunday sermons, The disaster was spun in religious terms, with churchly admonitions to keep hubris, human pride, to a respectable level, and to keep God, not unsinkable ships, at the top of the worship list. There were omens, many of them. Paul Amarald, author of The Man Who Wrote the S.O.S., wrote, In May of 2017, while looking for a quote to the beginning of my book, I came across different incidents of unexpected phenomena with the Titanic. The most famous example was the novel Futility, which was penned 17 years before the Titanic set sail and involved the world's largest ocean liner called the Titan, a cruise ship which was called Unsinkable, and a cruise ship which sank in the Atlantic after colliding with an iceberg. The book's author, Oswego, New York resident Morgan Robertson, a maritime expert and ex-merchant marine sailor, later disavowed having any psychic abilities or premonitions that his fictional creation would become an actual disaster. He said that he had been educated in shipbuilding trends and knew the sea and the dangers present that could threaten these newfangled floating creations. At the time Robertson wrote the book, steamships had been the primary means of ocean, bay, and river travel, and the number of deaths caused by exploding boilers and burning wooden ships was in the tens of thousands. And here it was, 1912, and the Titanic was outfitted with dozens of giant boilers, a series of explosions waiting to happen. And to add the final irony, Robertson's fictional story, both Robertson's ship, the Titan, and the White Star Line's Titanic, suffered fatal collisions on the starboard side, 400 miles from Newfoundland, on an April night. Robertson's father, Andrew, had been a ship captain on the Great Lakes, the man from whom young Morgan Andrew Robertson gained a love for the sea. In summers, Robertson would accompany his father on voyages through the Great Lakes. Biographer John Vess wrote that Robertson so loved the water, he ran away to sea at age 16. From 1877 to 1886, he served in the Merchant Marine, first on his beloved Great Lakes, and then throughout the world. Once he gave up traveling the seas, Robertson became interested in jewelry making, but he gave this up later because of his failing eyesight. Then a reporter gave him a book with sea stories. He noticed the inaccuracies, and that's when he wrote his first sea story. The book Futility, the title of which was later changed after the Titanic sank to capitalize on the uncanny similarities between the fictional story and the real disaster, is a novella only 69 pages long and well written. Other similarities between his fictional story and the Titanic, they were both from England. The length of the Titan was 800 feet, the Titanic 882.5. The Titan had 19 watertight compartments, the Titanic 16. Both had three props. Both had a maximum passenger capacity of 3,000. The Titan had 3,000 on board, the Titanic had 2,200. Both ships had far too few lifeboats. The Titan had 24, the Titanic 20. Both ships hit an iceberg in the North Atlantic off Newfoundland near midnight. Both were the largest ship afloat, and the death toll, the Titan, 2,987, the Titanic, 1,523. The Titan suffered a collision with another ship The Titanic narrowly avoided one upon leaving the harbor. Did Robertson have the gift of foresight? Many still think so. There was another story by Robertson, titled Beyond the Spectrum, which was published in 1914. In it, Robertson writes of a sneak attack on the United States naval fleet in Hawaii by Japanese ships, which leads to a war between Japan and the United States. It speaks of an ultraviolet light used in combat to blind and burn men, which some believe to be the foretelling of the use of the atomic bomb. If that doesn't wake you up to the possibility that somehow Robertson had at least subconsciously accessed a predetermined future, possibly twice, then nothing would. There were other events that took place before and during the Titanic's maiden voyage that looked like more than just mere coincidence. Bruce Ismay was the highest-ranking member of the White Star Lines who had survived the disaster, and it was he who took most of the brunt of the criticism and the attacks after the tragedy. The fact that he had escaped the sinking ship in the last lifeboat, a collapsible, along with only one other person, didn't help his reputation. He was branded a coward, and his company was subject to endless suits and inquiries, all of which he attended for twenty-five years after the disaster. "'and he made sure their claimants were paid. "'There are at least two stories about him "'from the world of the paranormal. "'Ismay's brother's grandson once said, "'I once asked my grandmother "'why my grandfather was not on the Titanic. "'She told me he was to have been, "'but had very serious pneumonia, so was at home. "'She then added that on the night of the Titanic disaster, "'he suddenly came out of the coma and said, "'Bruce is in trouble.' Bruce is in trouble. And this one from the traveling exhibition of Titanic artifacts. The exhibition includes a photo of Bruce Ismay. One morning the staff opened the exhibition to find the photo inexplicably lying on the floor of the entryway and carefully propped against the wall, reportedly still pristine and undamaged. Baffled by how the photo could have possibly gotten there during the night, surveillance footage was reviewed and that showed the photo appearing to shake on its own before being taken down and put against the wall as if by unseen hands. Paranormal investigators, including a team of ghost hunters who have come to the exhibit, have captured orbs of light and shadowy images as well, and there have been several EVP recordings made of what appear to be the voices of Titanic victims. There were many reported premonitions. Survivor Anne Ward, maid of the Cardiza family, had a premonition that something was going to happen to the ship during the maiden voyage. It is reported, Miss Ward told her mother, she did not want to make another voyage across the ocean. Major Archibald Willingham Butt was traveling as a first-class passenger on the Titanic. He had a premonition that he would not return home from his trip. It is believed he contacted his lawyer to arrange his last will and testament and closed up his affairs preparing for death. Major Butt perished in the sinking. Passenger William Thomas Steed was a well-known British journalist during the late 1890s and early 1900s. Prior to boarding the Titanic, Steed wrote a piece for the Review of Reviews publication titled, From the Old World to the New. In this fictional piece, Steed described a passenger on the White Star Line's majestic ship who encounters two ghostly survivors from the wreck of the Anne and Jane, a ship that sank after striking an iceberg. And survivor Ava Hart, who was seven years old at the time of the sinking, later claimed that her mother sat up every night rather than go to sleep on the Titanic because she was afraid there would be an accident. Chief Officer Wilde wrote to his sister about not liking the ship and having a queer feeling about it. And Wilde may have been unknowingly one reason the ship had hit an iceberg. His hiring had displaced another ship's officer, David Blair, who had been present during the sea trials, but was let go prior to sailing. Blair had accidentally taken the only known key to the cupboard containing the lookout's binoculars, and they could not be accessed that fateful night. The key remained in the possession of the Blair family for years and was finally sold at auction for $150,000. Lawrence Beasley, the author of The Loss of the Titanic, And a survivor of the sinking wrote of a number of coincidences and bad omens involving the ship. The first being a near collision at the harbor at Southampton when she nearly collided with the ship called New York. Then, afterwards, when a stoker who had apparently climbed to the top of Funnel 4, the air funnel, the only one that didn't serve as a smokestack, and peered over the top at the passengers as they were boarding, all as a prank. But a number of passengers, including Beasley, who had seen him up there, didn't see it as funny and later said it was perceived as a bad omen. You don't pull pranks on a ship, and you wouldn't do it in an airport today. We're running Beasley's Eyewitness Story every Wednesday night at 1001 Heroes right here, and we hope you're listening in. There were many dogs aboard the Titanic. In fact, they were planning on having a dog show on the 15th, but obviously never made it. You never hear much about the dogs that went down with the ship, but occasionally you will hear about Jenny the Cat. She was the ship's official cat and she was kept aboard the Titanic as a mascot and also worked to keep down the ship's population of rats and mice. She had been transferred over from the Titanic's sister ship Olympic. Jenny gave birth to kittens in the week before Titanic sailed from Southampton. She normally lived in the galley where the victualling staff fed her and the kittens on scraps from the kitchens. Stewardess Violet Jessop wrote that the cat laid her family near Jim, the Scullion, whose approval she always sought, and who always gave her warm devotion. Although life was looking pretty good, something was bothering Jenny. She'd been acting strange the last few days before the Titanic left Southampton. One day, just prior to sailing, she began to grab each of her kittens by the scruff of the neck and carried them down the gangplank off the ship, depositing them in the quay at Southampton, leaving all that warmth and security behind. As the Irish Times story put it, a stoker named Mulholland had approached, was looking up at the big ship, deciding at the time whether to apply on board or hook up with a tramp steamer which was also in port. He stood for a while watching Jenny making good her escape from the Titanic and took that as an omen. He signed on to the tramp steamer. None of the stokers on the Titanic survived. Then there was the story of the hero dog, a large black Newfoundland dog named Ridgel who purportedly was responsible for saving many survivors, according to stories published in at least one contemporary newspaper, and retold many times, including its retelling in the book of contemporary accounts by Logan Marshall. Many details differ from known facts, and the stories might be untrue, but it does prompt us to include a brief description of the animals that went down with the Titanic, so as not to leave the little ones out of the story. Those animals included dogs, cats, chickens, other birds, and an unknown number of rats. Three of the twelve dogs on the Titanic survived. All the other animals perished. A number of dogs were brought aboard by passengers as pets. Most were kept in kennels on the ship's F deck, though some first-class passengers kept theirs in their cabins, probably without the knowledge of the crew, or maybe with the turning of a blind eye, as they were not supposed to be doing so. The ship's carpenter, John Hutchison, was responsible for the dog's welfare. The kennel dogs were exercised daily on the poop deck by a steward or one of the billboys. As for the lap dogs, the American painter Francis David Millet wrote disapprovingly in a letter sent from the Titanic's last stop, Queenstown, in Ireland. He wrote Looking over the passenger list, I only find three or four people I know, but there are a number of obnoxious, ostentatious American women, the scourge of any place they infest, and worse on shipboard than anywhere. Many of them carry tiny dogs and lead husbands around like pet lambs. Then there was the rumor that one worker had died accidentally during the building of the Titanic and that his body had fallen down into part of the hull where it could not be retrieved. In the records of Harlan and Wolf the builders, this death is not mentioned, but they do mention eight men being killed during the construction of the Titanic in separate incidents, five of whom were named. 18 more were involved in serious accidents. One of the strangest haunting stories is this one, which appeared in Unexplained Mysteries. Perhaps the strangest tale of a haunting related to the Titanic, and there are many, has to do not with any artifact from the doomed ship, but rather a replica of it. Retired architectural draftsman Wyatt Jason Moore from Portsmouth, Virginia, managed to painstakingly build a 200-pound model of the RMS Titanic over the course of nine years and an estimated 17,368 hours of work, which was an ambitious project he became obsessed with after watching the 1958 film A Night to Remember. He began studying numerous old photographs of the Titanic, incorporating every detail he could into his grand vision, and he found himself spending hours and hours a day toiling away on his creation. The end result was a lifelike replica of the famous ship, accurate right down to each individual stairway and hall. When his masterpiece was finished, he decided to take some photos of it, and that was when strange things began to happen. As he took his photos, he could hear anomalous noises coming from the massive model sitting in his home, and later mysterious entities began to appear in his shots. He said this of one of the startling images that he took, I couldn't make it out until I looked at it very carefully and I found it was a bald-headed man with a handlebar mustache and I said to myself, what's he doing there? In addition to this creepy ghostly man were a spectral man and woman looking out of another porthole just above the lifeboats that showed up in his pictures. And around the same time as these events, Moore says that doors around the house began to mysteriously slam shut or open even when no one else was there. But he says he's not scared of whatever they were. He just thinks they're lost souls, saying, maybe it was someone that was aboard the Titanic that found a new home for himself. Skeptics have been quick to point out that the photos are nothing more than a reflection and trick of light. But Moore insists that the portholes on his model don't feature glass. Moore has tried to sell the haunted Titanic model on Craigslist, but he's found no takers perhaps because of the exorbitant $263,000 asking price, but he hopes that a museum will take it at some point. They might as well, because it seems any museum with genuine paraphernalia from the actual Titanic is haunted anyway. There were at least 50 would-be passengers or crew members, according to Titanic author John Eaton, that cancelled at the last minute. The most notable first-class passengers were George and Edith Vanderbilt, all ticketed, ready to go, with luggage and servant aboard. But someone had that old, nagging feeling that that something was amiss. That hunch saved their lives. Lawrence Beasley had a premonition as well, a strong one, and he shares it in his book, which we're covering chapter by chapter every Wednesday night here at 1001 Heroes. And we mentioned her briefly before, Titanic survivor Ava Hart had strong feelings that the ship was going down, and had stayed awake for two nights, sitting in a reading chair in her stateroom, fully dressed. She was another one who was quoted to have said that the White Star Line's advertising material, claiming that the ship was unsinkable, was flying in the face of God.
1: But it was going down quietly, and the lights were going under the water as it went down. And I remember that very plainly. Yes, that was a beautiful sight, and a terrible sight, because... We could see that the boat was going under the water. We couldn't help anybody. We had 65 or 70 in our boat. We couldn't help any. And we were standing room only. And we couldn't take another soul in our boat. So we rowed away as fast as
0: we could. Then there were legends and myths that didn't turn out to be well-founded. It was said that when the ship was christened, the bottle of champagne never broke, which would have been a bad omen. But in truth, other than in the film A Night to Remember. The ship was never christened. The White Star lines apparently did not practice christening of ships. It's also been said that the Titanic was the worst of all maritime tragedies in terms of loss of life, but in truth the worst was the sinking of the German ship the Wilhelm Gustav. The ship was built in 1937 and first launched as a cruise ship but was drafted into military service in 1939 as a barracks for submarine trainees and later to transport German refugees on special missions. A Soviet submarine spotted the Gustav while it was illuminated to help it safely through icy shipping waters and fired three torpedoes on it. According to newspaper reports, the ship was overcrowded with people at the time of the attack. Estimates put the death toll at 9,400 people. 4,000 of whom were children. The accident was not widely known for several years. Another legend tells of a giant rat appearing in third class that last evening during the dancing and festivities and that the appearance of a rat was perceived as a bad omen. The rat did appear amidst all the fun and the crowd was mostly young Irish men and women. The rat was treated with obligatory shrieks from the girls and a couple of young boys were dispatched to chase them. And the parting continued. Whether or not anyone pictured that rat as a bad omen is unknown, but a very small percentage of people in the third class survived for a number of reasons being that they were the last to be notified that the ship was sinking, that locked gates stood in the way of gaining the upper decks where the lifeboats were being launched, at least for a while, and when the gates were opened, most of the lifeboats had been launched, but many did make it. Then there's the story of Renee Harris, a survivor who said that a handsome stranger had approached her shortly after the voyage had begun, in fact that it had barely left the dock, and had just narrowly avoided a collision with another ship, when he asked her if she loved life. When she answered yes, the man told her that in case she should get off the ship in Cherbourg, if she wanted to live, that's what I'm going to do, said the man, and she never saw him again. She lost her husband in the sinking. An often quoted story or legend states that the first person to receive news of the sinking was David Sarnoff, who would later lead media giant RCA. In modified versions of this legend, Sarnoff was not the first to hear the news, though Sarnoff willingly promoted this notion. But he and others did staff the Marconi wireless station, a telegraph, which had been set up atop the Wanamaker department store in New York City. And for three days, relayed news of the disaster and names of the survivors to people waiting outside. Sarnoff's reputation rose after this event, and, however accurate it is, that event, combined with his aggressive talent and insight that believed strongly in the future of radio, helped him rise to become a legend in the media business. Despite popular belief, the sinking of Titanic was not the first time the internationally recognized Morse code distress signal SOS was used. The SOS signal was first proposed at the International Conference on Wireless Communication at sea, in Berlin, in 1906. It was ratified by the international community in 1908 and had been in widespread use since then. The SOS signal was, however, rarely used by British wireless operators who preferred the older CQD code. First wireless operator Jack Phillips began transmitting CQD until second wireless operator on the Titanic, Harold Bride, half-jokingly suggested, Send SOS, it's the new call, and this might be your last chance to send it. Phillips then began to intersperse SOS with the traditional CQD call. Strangely enough, there are reports that, in 1936, a ham radio operator named Gordon Cosgrave claimed to be receiving long-delayed Echo SOS messages from the Carpathia and Titanic, 24 years after their transmission. That makes you wonder. Another oft-cited Titanic legend concerns perished first-class passenger William Thomas Steed. According to this folklore, Steed had, through precognitive insight, foreseen his own death on the Titanic. This is apparently suggested in two fictional sinking stories, which he penned decades earlier. The first, how the mail steamer went down in the Mid-Atlantic by a survivor, 1886, tells of a mail steamer's collision with another ship, resulting in high loss of life due to lack of lifeboats. The second, from the Old World to the New, which he wrote in 1892, features a white starline vessel, the majestic, that rescues survivors of another ship that had collided with an iceberg. Some believe that there was another ship, the Norwegian Sealer, Sampson, in the vicinity of the Titanic when she sank. Proponents of the theory argue that the Sampson was a third ship in the area that night of the sinking, in addition to the Titanic and the Californian, or that the Californian was not near at all and it was the Sampson which Titanic passengers spotted in the distance while the ship was sinking. Advocates of Captain Lord's Innocent have avidly adopted the latter theory beginning with Leslie Harrison, the General Secretary of the Mercantile Marine Association, in the 1960s. The root of this claim comes from the testimony of one of the Samson's officers, Hendrik Bergethon Ness, who told a Norwegian newspaper in 1912 that his ship had been near a large liner with many lights shooting rockets into the sky the morning of April 15th. Because the Samson was seal-hunting illegally in territorial waters, the ship's officers decided to move on quickly to avoid detection. This claim seems unlikely as the Titanic was 400 miles off the coast of Newfoundland, well beyond territorial waters in 1912. The ship had no radio so they wouldn't have received any of the Titanic's distress signals. Ness claimed that the crew only became aware of the Titanic sinking after they arrived in Iceland in mid-May. If correct, the coordinates of Samson place her within 10 miles of Titanic's position as the ship was sinking. Titanic historians have pointed to numerous inconsistencies in Ness's four published accounts. He cited the Samson as returning from seal hunting south of Cape Hatteras, North Carolina, which is more than a thousand miles away from the cold waters of the Arctic Circle where seals live. The Titanic historian Leslie Reed obtained microfilmed Lloyd's List records reporting that the Sampson docked in Isafshodur twice that April, on the 6th and 20th, then on the 15th of May. The April dates would not have allowed anywhere near enough time for the Sampson to be in the vicinity of the Titanic on April 14th. Furthermore, the idea that the crew of the Californian spotted the Sampson instead of the Titanic is illogical, since their descriptions are of a large steamer, not a small schooner like the Sampson. And finally, no other crew member from the Samson ever gave testimony supporting Ness's claim. Defenders of the Samson theory argue that Ness said Cape Hatteras when he meant they were south of Cape Race, Newfoundland. Seal fishing waters which are physically very close to the site of the Titanic sinking. They argue that the Lloyd's Register dates of arrival in April are invalid because they were merely the expected arrival date of the Samson, which did not dock until mid-May. Such theories have been dismissed by Titanic historians including Leslie Reed, Walter Lord, and Edward de Groot. When the Titanic sank, claims were made that a curse existed on the ship. The press quickly linked the Titanic curse with the White Star Line practice of not christening their ships. One of the most widely spread legends linked directly into the sectarianism of the city of Belfast where the ship was built. It was suggested that the ship was given the number 390904, which, when reflected, resembles the letters No Pope, a sectarian slogan attacking Roman Catholics, used by extreme Protestants in Northern Ireland, where the ship was built. In the extreme sectarianism of the region at the time, the ship's sinking was alleged to be on account of anti-Catholicism by her manufacturers, the Harland and Wolf Company which had an almost exclusively Protestant workforce and an alleged record of hostility towards Catholics. And Harland and Wolfe did have a record of hiring few Catholics, whether that was through policy or because the company's shipyard in Belfast Bay was located in an almost exclusively Protestant East Belfast, through which few Catholics would travel. Of all the stories that came from the Titanic, perhaps the most poignant of the stories of the hymn-sing and that of the Titanic's band. Veronica Hinkey's interview recently with me for 1001 Heroes explained the story behind the hymn-sing and illustrated the irony of that spur-of-the-moment gathering, helped along by Lawrence Beasley, and what we found most surprising was the tone and lyrics of the songs that were sung. Many were songs describing death and danger at sea, then parting and loss, the last thing you would think passengers on a cruise ship would be happy to be singing. But on they went, through the sad lyrics of the Navy hymn, Nearer My God to Thee, Autumn, and many others. day fears that we all feel when on the sea or in the air were soothed or perhaps their knowing subconscious found solace in pouring out these sad requiems who knows but the hymn sings were prophecy and all directed as a prayer to a higher authority then there was the band and the question is still debated to this day were they playing nearer my god to thee in the few moments before the ship went vertical and then sank down The eight-member band, led by Wallace Hartley, had assembled in the first-class lounge in an effort to keep passengers calm and upbeat. Later they moved on to the forward half of the boat deck. The band continued playing even when it became apparent the ship was going to sink, and all the members of the band perished. There has been much speculation about what their last song was. A first-class Canadian passenger, Mrs. Vera Dick, and several other passengers, alleged that the final tune played was that of the hymn Nearer My God to Thee. Hartley reportedly once said to a friend if he were on a sinking ship, Nearer My God to Thee would be one of the songs he would play. But Walter Lord's book A Night to Remember popularized wireless operator Harold Bride's 1912 account, written in the New York Times, that he heard the song Autumn before the ship sank. Bride is one of only two witnesses who were close enough to the band as he floated off the deck before the ship went down. Some consider his statement to be reliable. Mrs. Dick had left by the lifeboat an hour and twenty minutes earlier and could not possibly have heard the band's final moments.
1: I heard that when I went forward the second time were put some stewardess into a lifeboat and that I found they didn't know where to go or what to do.
0: And on my way back I found, the, I heard the band playing, near my I got to thee, and them singing. Colonel Archibald Gracie, an amateur historian who was aboard the ship until the final moments, and was later rescued on a capsized collapsible lifeboat, wrote his account immediately after the sinking, but died from his injuries eight months later. According to Gracie, the tunes played by the band were cheerful, but that he didn't recognize any of them, claiming that if they had played Nearer My God to Thee as claimed to the newspaper, he said, I assuredly would have noticed it and regarded it as a tactless warning of immediate death to us all and one likely to create panic. We end this episode with the song Nearer My God to Thee and wish all our listeners safe and happy travels. And remember to follow those last-minute hunches. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. A few things to tell you. Number one, I don't mention this often, but I really should. For those of you patrons who wish to support us, we do have a Patreon account. It's at patreon.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork. It's patreon.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork. And if you go there and pledge a monthly amount to support us, That really does help us a lot moving forward, and we thank you for that. Also, we put a lot of work into this show, into research, into writing, into putting down the audio, and then editing the audio, and then distributing the show out there so everyone can hear it. And if you enjoy our show and haven't yet left a review for 1001 Heroes, we would appreciate your doing so this week. We also appreciate very much new subscriptions, We have four podcast shows, 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, this one, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 1001 Stories for the Road, and 1001 Radio Days. All of them are weekly, and all of them offer great choices for listening. Please do send us some comments and reviews this week, Apple listeners. We would appreciate that very much. Meanwhile, everybody, stay safe. Have a good week.